In May 2022, I read a news item about chronic pain, and I was immediately excited to make a special edition of Emotipod on the subject, which is a personal one for me, as I've been living with chronic pain for over 30 years now. This podcast is usually about arts and emotions, but so many people, including artists, live with chronic pain, and there are so many emotions involved. I thought it might be an interesting and hopefully illuminating listen. I'm your host, Frances Butt, and there's so much to this topic, it's a two-parter. This is part one. The word chronic is often used to mean pretty rubbish or hopeless, but it comes from the Greek chronos, meaning time. So there's acute pain, the short, sharp shock type that goes away, and there's chronic pain that settles in and makes itself at home. It's a long journey where you learn a heck of a lot about yourself along the way, about different attitudes of other people who live with chronic pain, and of course, the attitudes of those who don't know what it's like. There's no one-size-fits-all to chronic pain, but it has some common emotional features, and because it can all get a bit... painful, I'm going to need to drop in the odd terrible joke just in this intro, I'm afraid. So, what's the frequency of no pain at all? Zero hertz. Pain uses up energy. So, chronic pain is exhausting. And that causes sadness and grief for lost energy and immobility. You embark upon an anxious search for solutions, putting your faith and hope into this or that thing or practitioner. Hope turns to disappointment and frustration when it doesn't work. And repeat, ad nauseum. It's kind of surprising, shocking and confusing that it's not going away, as the fear sets in that you'll never be your old self again. Pain can mean embarrassment, humiliation and shame. You feel you should be able to do simple things you used to be able to, but you just can't. Maybe you can't even clean the loo without difficulty now, or at all, or keep your home as tidy as you'd like to. Every runner or cyclist sprinting along, every fit, healthy octogenarian, even little kids skipping about may generate envy, more feelings of shame, humiliation and grief. You grieve for your old self. You may feel isolated and lonely. You might put on a brave face, not wanting to worry your loved ones or bore or alienate people. But the mask may sometimes slip as you become snappy irritable, angry. And if anyone who doesn't know what chronic pain is like wants to make someone who does really angry, just offer some unsolicited advice. Have you tried turmeric? I find swimming great. Good for you. Lavender oil is wonderful. As if you won't have tried everything in the book. Or you could drop in a little helpful observation, like, you're limping. Or... You do look tired. No shit, Sherlock. You might find yourself resenting your poor body. You might even come to hate it or hate yourself. And as time goes on, it's no surprise if all the above is marked or masked by depression and despair. And whoever stole my antidepressants, I hope you're happy. 
according to some quarters of the well-being industry, you only have yourself to blame for your chronic pain. You've brought it upon yourself with your life choices. You somehow deserve it, then. This blunt and unsympathetic attitude fails to consider congenital issues, disabilities, injuries and illness. Although some do argue that all illnesses are self-inflicted too. Hmm. But even if it's true that some things you've done may have contributed to your pain, the blame game is just so unhelpful. Firstly, it piles on more shame, perpetuating the cycle of self-loathing and depression. And it doesn't in any way help you to deal with the realities of now. So what have we got? Sadness, grief, lost hope, confusion, frustration, embarrassment, humiliation and shame, envy, fear and anxiety, irritability, anger, resentment, self-hatred, depression, loneliness and despair. That's a lot. And if you're feeling uncomfortable just hearing this list, me too. Preparing this introduction, I was thinking this is all too negative and it's going to turn people off. And this is part of the problem. All these kinds of feelings are understandably unpopular because they are painful. Interesting. Prolonged physical pain then gets very intertwined with emotional pain. The doctor asked me to rate my pain. I said, zero stars, would not recommend. And because most of us have been taught, consciously or not, that feelings like anger, sadness or fear are to be strenuously avoided, practically taboo, they may still happen, but they'll remain stuck there, suppressed and unprocessed, continually bubbling back up as part of a vicious cycle where you become more and more unwell. Because one thing is certainly true. When you don't face stuff, it's hidden, but its power grows. Physical pain and mental anguish, then, are indivisible. Now, some people do manage to remain incredibly upbeat in the face of unbelievable pain, and this is always very impressive. How do they do that? Maybe they've found some key. For example, the actor Warren Davis, who was born with spondyloepiphyseal dysplasia congenita, which causes dwarfism, lives with constant pain and takes half an hour to get moving in the mornings. But he's unbelievably positive, and he lives life to the max, despite all this. Perhaps it's because he's never known anything else, and perhaps an exciting life as a movie actor helps as well. But whatever it is, he certainly puts me to shame, because for me it felt frightening to discover my energy and my joy for life seeping away. Although I did start learning to really appreciate every tiny good thing life has to offer along the way, and I'll come back to this later. So, if you haven't switched off yet, there is good news. Please listen on, because I've been talking to some brilliant, deeply intelligent friends who have long experience of chronic pain. Their stories and their journeys are all different, and each of them brings the wisdom of their experience and understanding to the table. First, let's get the backstories starting with superb musician and fellow Alexander Technique teacher, Chrissy Van Dyke, a previous Emotipod guest. So I first had um, 
pain in my knees and I was eight. And okay. off we went, rheumatology at the Royal Free, and they said, oh, this child is hypermobile. <laughs> yeah. You must send her to be a gymnast. <laughs> oh, okay. Which is that the is, answer to your pain? It's a bloody terrible idea, Awful. actually. Um, but they did, decades ago, select children with hypermobility for gymnastics, which in fact is, yes. you know, yeah, which qu- is quite detrimental to the health. God, long term. And then I ended up being bounced around a few clinics and things, rheumatology, and this was the, was the first stop but if you don't actually have rheumatoid arthritis they don't really know what to do with you Mm. so it was management for many years without any really good significant diagnoses and things to work on and that's what you think you need at the beginning Uh, give me some diagnoses so I know what I'm dealing with yeah and what to do with it about it right fix it yeah but the knowledge around hypermobility syndrome in the 70s was very much Misguided. So I did spend the 80s and the 90s jumping up and down, playing hard, gigging hard, uh-huh. <laughs> trained in a boxing gym, which is one of the worst things I could have done because oh. um, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I quite like hitting things. <laughs> <laughs> that was my therapy. Yeah. So yes, it's it's... Good, good for my head, but not for my shoulders. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it spread from your knees. It became other you know, short shoulders. Yeah. yeah. Typically, I think it, it starts in, in a big pair of joints, hips or knees or something like that. Mm. Um, and as I got older, I think I was in my 20s and I was bouncing around back in hospital because I was getting nerve pain in my arms and hands. And they said, oh, you've got an extra set of ribs in your neck. That's never a good thing. Ooh. So it turned out that a lot, you know, the source of a lot of my pain was congenital birth defects, hypermobility, arthritis now to get older because it runs in the family. Mm. A few other bits and bobs, they love to chuck labels at you. So the years are going by as this is happening. Yeah. Yeah. And playing became hard. So being a musician seemed to be perhaps something that was going to be impossible. And I quit. Mm-hmm. Got a medical science degree instead. Now that's, uh, <laughs> that's a double-edged sword. Well, it's hard on the morale, <laughs> first of all, to lose your art, you know, yeah. making career. Yeah, yeah, it was. It had been at that point. So I was very, very depressed. And I tell you what, depression and pain, oi! <laughs> One ramps the other up. It's you're yeah, they totally. Are, they are ghastly twins. Catch, catch yeah. twenty two with that yeah. one. Yeah. So you kind of have to attack both when you get into that state. Right. And that is, I think, how I dealt with it for a while. Um, and then medication. <laughs> Atta- yeah, in a very attacky way. Like I can, I can fight this. Okay. When in fact, you can't, because if you can't change the source of the pain, despite many surgeries right. and rebuilding of, of joints as you know it's um some of the some of it fixes some of it doesn't but it's systemic yeah so then after a while you realize that you now have chronic pain you're neurologically adapted to be in pain and it doesn't go away even with fixes it just doesn't right and we'll talk more about various fixes that people try for chronic pain in due course But first, psychotherapist and mental health educator, Lisa Jones, on a rather rusty line, but bear with us. I lived with chronic illness for 12 years, basically. Um, One of the diagnoses that I had was fibromyalgia, ME, and a plethora of other things, including endometriosis, hemiplegic migraine, all sorts of stuff, all things that cause pain. Yeah. (laughs) So kind of learnt to live with pain, really. Learnt to live with pain for a long, long, long time. Yeah, struggled with joint pain and things throughout my life. 
And finally, here's Alex Bolag, who I also met through the Alexander Technique, but who now offers coaching for people with chronic pain. She knows a lot about it. How long have you gone? (laughs) (laughs) That's the trouble with chronic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I actually first um, had a lot of facial pain as a small child, and I had very chronic, what was at the time diagnosed as sinus problems, Um, and it was pretty intense. And at some point as a you know, a young person and a young teenager, it was diagnosed as neuralgia. I actually had facial surgery. Um, wow, I didn't know that. As a teenager, yeah, to try and help correct what was going on, which didn't. So that was kind of an ongoing side of things. And then I started getting very intense migraines that would, you know, I would black out from them. They were so intense when I was about 13 years old. Wow. Yeah. And that kind of led into having a headache all the time, I would say, throughout most of my late teens, um, about to mid-20s. So, yeah, and then started to settle into just living with having periodically, maybe once a week, from very intense migraines and ongoing headaches. So here you are. You set out on the journey of looking for answers. What's causing this pain and why isn't it going away? Congenital conditions like Chrissy's are clearer. In other cases, the cause is harder to find. But in either case, managing the pain somehow becomes the main quest. When you first developed this, you know, this isn't going away. This is starting to be a bit bloody boring. How were you managing? Were you, were you living on painkillers or how, how were you managing? Yeah, I mean, truthfully, I was um, I was kind of a bit of a walking chemist. Um, right. Huge concoction of pain medication. Mm. Um, when I look back now, I think I can't believe, because nowadays, you know, you struggle to get me to take a paracetamol. Unless I absolutely have to take medication, I, I don't take it. Yeah. Um, but back then, and I think, how was I working? How was I doing these things? I mean, literally, I mean, at one point, I was taking morphine, codeine, Ibuprofen. I mean, I, when I say a cocktail of drugs, I mean, it was a real... Wow, that makes you super dopey as well. Yeah, and I still was managing to work. I was like, I don't quite know how I did that. I did find that things like yoga, pilates, exercises helped finding the right balance of it. So enough to kind of keep my body moving, but then not too much that then I felt like my body was on fire. Right, right. Um, so trying to find that combination really, but yeah, predominantly pain medication and then going in and out of um you know pain management clinics and, and doing all the things that the doctors were telling me to do and truthfully none of it was really very effective. Let's talk about drugs for a moment. They can be hugely helpful for pain in the short term, just so that you can function well enough to get stuff done or recover from surgery or something like that. So if you're using painkillers right now for that reason, never let anyone shame you about it. That said Drugs work less successfully as a long-term strategy. And as we were saying, the most effective ones tend to be opiates, which are addictive. Even over-the-counter drugs like paracetamol and ibuprofen aren't great long-term for the old guts, kidneys, liver, lungs or heart. And anyway, the longer you take them, the less effective they become. Also, while painkillers can get you through a bad day or night, so absolutely hooray for them, what if there are other reasons not to take them? Chrissy, well, the first thing was, can I can you know can I control the pain? Because I'd sobered up and didn't use any kind of alcohol or drugs to distract myself anymore. 
in my 30s, it, it became really difficult because I didn't have a switch off. I didn't have a chemical mechanism. And then, of course, doctors put you on everything, one thing after another after another. Yeah. And that all has its problems, all has its side effects. And I didn't want to be, quite frankly, off my head mm. with very heavy opiates and stuff. Yeah. You get to the point where you think, well, my sobriety is important, but pain management is important. And now I'm really torn between how we do one or the other. Yeah, because painkillers are generally that work opiates. Yeah. That's a problem. So it's certainly a problem with anyone who's had a drug problem. Yeah. Because opiates are the thing you should be avoiding if you're an addict. <laughs> they're, um, they're not ideal. No. Because <laughs> they can be too much fun if your yeah. brain if your things brain like goes getting there. through surgeries and you need opiates. It's a, it's a yes, risk, yes. You're on the old um, morphine when you come around and stuff. But I'd always try and come off it as quickly as possible. Mm. So recoveries were difficult. Mm. I didn't want to torture myself. I didn't want to say, oh, you must suffer through the pain because the suffering bit is absolute nonsense. It's like management. And the older I've got, the more I've realised that you um, you do give in to it because the energy it takes to feel like you're fighting it is exhaustible very, very quickly. Yeah. Here's Lisa again. The painkillers were getting you through the day and the night uh-huh. for a while. Uh-huh. Did there efficacy start to dwindle as you took them more and more or did you just start to feel a bit crappy for having to take painkillers all the time anyway or what was the what made you stop ultimately Uh, I think a combination of both to be honest a a, a real deciding factor actually was my university interview and it's really funny I could tell you exactly what I was wearing and I other than what I was wearing and then one I can remember being in one room with like three other people and we've been given a question that we had to answer. Couldn't tell you what it was. And I have no memory. I, I don't remember that day. I don't remember. And I was there all day. It was a whole day. Wow. And I think it was that point that I was like, I can't live like this. I don't, I mean, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know. I don't remember things. And I just thought that's just not a way to live. And I think truthfully, you know, they weren't as effective. Yeah. I was 22 years old. 22, Lisa. So I decided to kind of reduce all... So I've been put on various other things like boost blockers and steroids and all sorts of things for other, you know, Gosh, conditions. Yeah. And I just thought, no, no, not going to keep doing that. I'll try and do it holistically instead and kind of more organically and naturally. And this was the path that Alex had already ventured down. So I started very early looking for solutions. I mean, I started seeing alternative health practitioners as a teenager. My parents were really supportive. And at that point, you know, I been to see God knows how many neurologists and endocrinologists and rheumatologists and all the people. All the ologists. <laughs> so for a long time, I sought the help of people like acupuncturists, chiropractors, osteopaths for many, many, many years. Lisa tried many alternatives too. What did you try? Everything, literally everything. I got to the <laughs> stage where I thought, right, Whatever it takes, I'll try it. <laughs> so I tried. I mean, so things like physical therapies, for every kind of physio, chiro, osteo, like you name it, I went and saw them. Yep. You know, from the nutritional perspective, I had every book on certain foods, certain diets, et cetera, to reduce inflammation. Yep. You know, all of those things. <laughs> so I went down the whole diet route, yep. um, did all of that. I tried all kinds of complementary therapies from yep. you know, aromatherapy, reflexology, kinesiology. I mean, everything. 
I mean, I don't even mind admitting this. <laughs> At one point, somebody suggested a clonic irrigation was a really good cure for. Oh yeah. And I was like, right, we'll try that as well. <laughs> because you you do you do try anything you will try anything won't you yeah absolutely how could that possibly work well you never know it's worth a shot yeah and for the record it was in one of the most horrendous experiences of my (laughs) life I would not recommend it It did not help in any way that desperation of just like yeah okay let's try this yeah we'll try that acupuncture in everything everything And it's not to say kind of none of it worked because it did. All of it helped in various ways. You know, it really did. I'm not knocking. I'm a huge advocate for, you know, trying alternative therapies and treatments Mm. and what have you. But I just didn't kind of, I couldn't quite get the right balance of whatever it was that I was needing to do. Back to Chrissy. We're trying to find a balance between medical intervention when appropriate and then just doing work myself to manage things yeah that's another thing dealing with other people's opinions about what you need they may be right but they may be way out and you put your trust in people who might take you down the wrong path with all good intentions of course some of them very sweetly and some of them very arrogantly yes (laughs) which is a whole (laughs) nother bucket of anger and (laughs) well surgeons like to cut you know and and they will always people do what they do they do what exactly they do what they do yeah um now ultimately no one's gonna fix you (laughs) you go get crunched you go get pummeled you get injected you get reikied all these lovely other things And, and, and there are so many modalities that for you as an individual may help i found reflexology to be amazing for moving the lymph after surgery in my my shoulder yeah so there's been times where i absolutely believe those things have been helpful yes and alex kept searching too and it was only about seven six or seven years ago i'm not even sure i need to write down the timeline when i was first very seriously introduced to the idea that with certain types of chronic pain conditions you could work in such a way that you could start to affect your brain structure. Right. So that, you know, chronic pain happens, pain happens in the brain. Ultimately, it happens in the nervous system. It happens in the brain. So I started pursuing that and I really educated myself on the issue. I threw myself into a program that was supposed to help me change my brain. And honestly, my headaches got worse. (laughs) But you know what? I think that's the way recovery goes for a lot of people. And ultimately, it was the beginning of real recovery because it was the first time I was really even considered I could get better. I'd never considered I could get better. All I'd ever considered was is I can be potentially functional. (laughs) Oh, wow. But I'd always been told this is something you'll live with your whole life. There's absolutely no way out of this. Mm. Um, I was told that my neck was so degenerated that, you know, it was just going to get worse. So that led me on a journey of learning more about the nervous system, learning more about the brain, and then eventually learning more about how stress and emotional distress might be playing into what I was experiencing. So it was a long process of recovery that involved exploring lots of different things. Um, Mm. But it got me to the point where I'm really well. So, yeah. Amazing. It's so great to have you here. As living proof that it is possible to not just live with your pain, but 
um, well, to, to be, to just to be free, not necessarily free of pain, but to be free really. Um, so we can talk about that a bit later and I'm dying to hear about that part, that that episode, that last chapter there, (laughs) but what's going on through all those times when, first of all, you're going to the experts with this terrible thing, you're in great distress really, and you're investing your hopes in their being able to help you. And they are the great and the good and the wise and the clever, and they're not able to help time and again. So what's emotionally speaking, what's the sequence going on there for you in in those years? Mm -hmm. It's so interesting, isn't it? I had so many experiences of people saying they could help me and not being able to help me. Very early on, I mean, even as a teenager, I didn't have a lot of expectations of people. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I wasn't I wasn't one of those stories of going in thinking this is going to be the next great thing. This is going to help me because I had been so not helped. I tried so many different types of medications, so many different types of things. But I will tell you what did happen as I started to This really started to happen, I would say, in my 20s as I started to explore things under my own steam a little more as I became an adult. Yeah. What I did start to experience was going to a practitioner. This was all in the alternative kind of realm, like let's say for arguments like a chiropractor, but I don't want to bang on against any of these people because, you know, there's so many good people out there who really do help. Um, But I'm thinking of of a chiropractor I went to. And they would say, oh, I know exactly what's wrong with you. And I can help you. This happened to me over and over again. And I was, you know, I'd been through enough at that point that I would think, oh, okay, let's see. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. But, you know, I'm open. Maybe this person will help me. And inevitably, when the treatment didn't work, a conversation would start around, well, maybe you're not taking this seriously. Oh. Maybe you're, and, and turning it around onto oh. me. Yeah. And that I found really difficult and really oh. depressing because even though I was clued in enough to know that's what was happening, it was really painful. It's such an isolating experience. Um, Truly, yeah. I remember one chiropractor once said to me, We've had a whole series of treatments and I just, you know, wasn't getting any relief at all. If anything, um, a lot of these things made me feel worse. And he said, uh, we were chatting about, you know, my cycle and, and talking about how it might be related to hormones. And he said, oh, oh, well, if this is caused by your hormones and it's not your fault. And I remember thinking, <laughs> have you been somehow living with the idea that this is my fault? Yeah, right. <laughs> my God. Yeah, I didn't go back to see him again. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. So I, I experienced a lot of that. Yeah. And I think that's probably not uncommon, especially for people who have, you know, when I look back and I look back at the things that helped that didn't help, I would say that I had a lot of different causal issues going on at the same time. And so, you know, when the person treating me maybe addressed one of them, so things got a little bit better or maybe didn't address any of them, Mm -hmm. it often got to the point where it was kind of, yeah, turned um, again or you know do you really want to get well oh can I swear on this podcast 
Please, I wish you would. Yeah, I just spent two hundred dollars seeing you. Yeah, fuck yeah, I want to get well. You know, (laughs) what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, I experienced a lot of that, which I think is is yeah, it's really hard. It's really really hard. Yes, being shamed is unfortunately a common experience in this journey. Not only does it test your patience, it tests the patience of your loved ones who don't enjoy your pain either, which makes you feel ashamed for it. And even the experts you go to for help can become irritated when their modality doesn't work, especially if they take that failure personally, as if you're showing them in a bad light. And that sucks. So what were you feeling when when that's turned around on you? What, what were you going through? I mean, I know what I go through when, when that's happened to me, but what goes on there? Well, I think I was very, very lucky that all the way through, I had always taken it upon myself to read to, and to educate myself. Mm-hmm. So mostly I was just pissed off. Yeah. I experienced it as shaming. Yeah. But I kind of refused to take that on. Hey, good on you. But yeah, so mostly I would say my main emotions at that point were real frustration. Yeah. You know, and that frustrating feeling of you're not hearing me, you're not seeing me, you're not acknowledging reality. I feel like, you know, it's interesting. There was one practitioner who I stayed in touch with over many, many years. And to be honest, I don't think they helped me a lot, but they always said to me, I'm a bit baffled by your case. I'm not sure exactly what's going on. Let's try this and see what happens. And I always found that a lot easier to deal with someone who was humble and open about Mm. how they saw things. Yeah. And as years went by and you were still having to deal with debilitating episodes, sometimes completely incapacitating, Mm -hmm. how did you manage your you know, your heart through all this, your, your morale really. Yeah. Such a good question. I think I managed it with a lot of denial about how much it was impacting me. You know, um, one of the things I didn't mention, uh, which is a really, really big missing link in my story when when I was first giving you a little bit of a summary about my history was that very early on I got involved in learning the Alexander technique and then became an Alexander technique teacher yeah and one of the benefits I believe I gained from doing that work was having the capacity to function even when I was in a lot of pain right now looking back I'm not sure that was only a good thing. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I I have mixed feelings about that. Yeah. But it kind of gave me the ability to override how I was feeling physically and just keep living my life quite normally, I would say. Yeah. Which I think, you know, when I really started to get more into emotional recovery, I really had to face much more of my own vulnerabilities around this, like face 
what it would be like to not participate in something because I was in too much pain to do so. Because actually I had, I had just like <laughs> bulldozed through that for so many years yeah. at great cost to myself and my health and my well-being. Yeah. So yeah, I think denial and disassociation was a lot oh. of how I dealt with it. It's a, a an understandable strategy completely. I mean, you want to get stuff done. You want to have your life and do things and enjoy things. And to surrender seems like it's going to make yeah. everything impossible. And you, you're you not going to surrender. No, no, no. I totally get mm. that. But in terms of what was not so great about that mm. being functional. Yeah. T- tell us about that bit. I genuinely don't think in a way I was functional. Oh, okay. You know, I look back and I see myself as having one of the drivers, not and again, I think for me, it was very multi-causal, but one of the drivers I think was just my migraines were my personal version of a total emotional shutdown, okay. just a total like internal collapse. So overriding that, I think was a really tough thing to do that took a lot of energy, a lot of mental energy, you know. It's interesting you were saying, how emotionally did you deal with that? How is your heart? Well, I don't know because I got so good at strategizing how to manage with pain, like mentally planning, setting priorities, managing things, managing my time. Um, And I do not think that was healthy. And Mm -hmm. I think it, it also kept me away from really facing what was going on for me, you know, what was, what was causing these episodes. Um, I think it was exhausting. Yeah. There's that word exhausting again, the striving, the struggle, the determination to succeed, to win, to beat this thing or not let it beat you takes so much effort and energy that it becomes a significant proportion of the whole problem. And Alex mentioned denial there as well sort of not facing something or other under there. So when did you stop fighting it so much? And uh, is mm. it a coming to terms, would you say, or is it a making peace with it or yourself? Or what? what's the turning point there? This is what I'm interested in. I, I think for me, it felt like stages of grief. Yeah. Um, because my identity had changed, my well-being, everything about me had changed. Yeah. And then you see yourself as disabled, yeah. as changed, as altered, yeah. as less than you were before. Oh boy, yeah. And that is the really hard bit to get your head around and say it's actually, it's fine, it's not a problem, but it's just something I have to get used to and adapt for. But that takes a few years of being very angry as well, being... Right. And feeling hopeless. But it's the attitude that comes with it. Yeah. It's the, do I, do I choose to feel like I'm diminished in some way or do I just accept that every day is... A new day. Right. And it's an interesting one when people are going through surgeries and or treatments and things and they, they talk about recovery and getting back to normal. First thing you've got to do is ignore that what normal was thing because you're never going to be that person. No. Hopefully. Letting, yeah, letting go of You have good old, results, yeah. but you don't, you're not 100%. You're changed. Yeah. Yeah. You're still you. Mm. No matter what you lose. You know what? You can lose <laughs> a lot and still be you. So, yeah, what is that you underneath all this stuff that you're wanting? <laughs> yeah, it takes a while to find that out, I mm. think. And to 
not look at limitations but adaptations and think, well, it's okay. I mean, I I can't play for long. But, but to I, me, you're still Chrissy completely. Occasionally I just play, yeah. <laughs> Whether you're playing or not. That's right, yeah. that's right. And like you, the Alexander stuff was very... Um, that was a good turning point because once you stop adding in all the stuff, you realise that you might actually be in less pain anyway. Mm. And I yeah, stopped being the fix-me person as yeah, well. I knew that. it's the trying, it's the grabbing and needing and wanting and searching and it's hard work, isn't it? Really hard work. Well, it's and endless. It's, it's absolutely endless and mm. it can lead you down all these rabbit holes bad for you mentally financially everything else yeah yeah people but are very so, desperate for yeah that. yeah yeah but it's so easy to say that from a position of having surrendered and relaxed and let go of trying yeah to someone who is still has the desire so strongly to be better and well you see it, it in people be... straight away don't you? you know that they're nowhere near accepting yeah that things aren't going to be so what saying they all want. these things to someone who's still at that stage is just not Mm. helpful actually well, I do think it's grief I think yeah. they're in the disbelief yeah, anger need... bargaining yes there's a lot of that going on yeah you need to have those you're entitled to bloody have them yes and they are important to process and to have well it's the processing isn't it it's, yeah. cho- it's choosing to to just be in the room with it mm. and say this is how it is yeah. I just have to find a way to make it work for me so there are stages of grief for the things you've lost that have to be gone through Part of that grief, as Chrissy says, involves denial and anger. But if you don't get past those stages, you get stuck in denial or in anger. And then you might be angry in the wrong places and at the wrong things. It's, but that's what happens. You deflect it and you, you're, not, you're not doing the stuff. You're not doing yeah. the, I, I want to be okay with it. Yeah. The, the grieving, the processing. No, you're, yeah, yeah, you're you just, yourself. You're just putting it away. Well, it's like being a drug addict. It's the same thing. It's the other person's fault. It's the world's fault. Yeah. It's the world is wrong. I'm angry about it. Well, it's the self-responsibility bit is missing, isn't it? Mm. I actually have to do this for myself. Yeah. Which is shit, yeah. but it's true. Yeah. And then it's not so shit. It is shit and then it's less shit when you make peace with yourself. And God, it's taken me a long time to do that. It's taken me so long. Well, it doesn't stop. Yeah, I'm still in the process, but I'm not angry with myself and not hating myself. And mm. that's... It's only the last yeah, you, year or two. You went there. It's only the last year. Hard, or two. yeah. Yes, you do need to have and go through those emotions of denial and rage and fear and hope and dashed hope and hope and dashed hope again. Yes. <laughs> and disappointment. <laughs> yeah. And grief, as you say, lots and lots of grief. And these emotions and stages can keep cycling for years as you keep trying to make progress. The grief goes on, and the anger can certainly go on. As I mentioned in the introduction, other people can drive you nuts with the things they say. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Um, (laughs) Sorry. You know, you've got to go through these things to learn about them in order to find out what's what. But this belittling of people's um, struggles and... But these are the kind of platitudes and and epithets and nonsenses that you hear that really don't get you anywhere. And just, again, it's piling on more shame. People say, well, or it's all in the mind. And what is so interesting about both those things you've mentioned, like pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Mm. That comes out of 
work by a psychologist that's very interesting and nuanced <laughs> and to reduce it to those two sentences that you then put on it it makes no sense and the same yeah. with what was the thing you just said that was so good um you said oh it's um, all in the mind it's all in the mind is it all, all in the mind, mind? yeah yeah oh, it's all in your head and yeah. it's like no it's not in fact some of it might be in your brain which is way scarier than it being in your mind but that doesn't mean that the mind can't have this enormous capacity to influence and help you right yeah so it i'm with you these these platitudes make me crazy because they cheapen i don't know they they make it easier for people to dismiss things that actually are they're just not helpful i mean that's the bottom line (laughs) they're just not yeah Please don't say things like that, anybody, ever. Although it can be too easy, glib and unsympathetic to say it's all in your head, there is some truth in it because, strictly speaking, pain doesn't happen in the tissue itself. It's a nervous system response. But that doesn't mean you're making it up. It's real enough. But let's look at how it works. The nervous system consists of the brain, the spinal cord, and a huge communication network of A-road and B-road nerves running through every bit of the head, neck, torso and limbs. So it's not just the brain. The whole nervous system is involved in the responding, figuring out and message sending all of the time. And one of its important jobs is to help you survive, to get you out of danger by anticipating trouble. If you see a saber-toothed tiger, a mortal enemy or a car coming over the hill, it will generate a lightning-fast whole-body response to fight that thing off or get you out of its way expediently, which is marvellous. But the nervous system also learns from experiences of threat or potential threat, becoming sensitised, anticipating and reacting ever more quickly and easily. Just think of creepy crawlies, and you might feel phantom ones on your skin that make you shudder and want to brush them off. It's that quick. The thought triggers a physical response. It's the same with pain which can develop into a loop cycle so that just the anticipation or fear of pain will kick off the pain response. Everyone's life experiences are individual, so everyone's response wiring is individual too. This is borne out by what my knee surgeon told me, which is that he sees a huge variety of pain levels with respect to joint wear and tear. Some people have very little pain in the presence of extensive joint surface deterioration, sometimes even crunching along bone on bone without too much distress, while others have very little wear but experience extreme pain. So, once you've had that experience of an injury, disease, or some unknown reason that has instigated that response of danger, there's a problem here, the system brilliantly anticipates any possible trigger for that pain to recur. And fortunately, but also unfortunately, your response wiring grows stronger and stronger. The body can be triggered into pain mode more and more of the time. It believes, as it were, that this crisis is necessary. And if someone has unseen or not yet understood emotional causes behind their pain, this triggering will keep happening until they can start making some breakthroughs in that area. In part two, we'll be looking more into mental and emotional causes of chronic pain, some big turning points, and some useful strategies for starting to change those nervous system responses. See you there. <laughs>